Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lepka, and I'm here today with the brothers-in-law, uh, Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. And Dean and Professor Vic Amar. Hi, Vic. Hello to both of you. And listeners to our podcast will know that uh, that Vic has been on uh, as a guest uh, in the past, and we're we're thrilled to have him on today for the second part of our discussion about the uh, ISL theory, independent state legislature theory, um, and how it poses a threat to the republic, and not just a theoretical sort of vague uh, threat, but something that's uh, possibly quite imminent. And we were reminded of that this week uh, with the headline everywhere around the world, um, the hearings regarding the January 6th fiasco. And, you know, a lot of people, when they've listening to the horrific testimony and and you know facts that are coming out are worried not just about seeing that justice is done uh in terms of the perpetrators and that uh, people be called to account who acted irresponsibly but also to because this may be a problem a portent of problems in the future um you know the idea of you know, stealing an election, which is some which we alluded to last time when we discussed some of the things that can happen uh, if ISL theory were to prevail. Um, you know, that's horrible in and of itself. But now we also can see what can happen to the republic if a substantial portion of the population believe that it's stolen, whether from bad faith or not. And now here we're talking about a situation where the uh, state legislatures may actually be empowered to effectively steal elections. Um, now, it's not just us that's worried about this. Uh, this, is a, this is actually something that has been called to the public's attention by the New York Times. Um, the journalist Adam Liptak uh, recently had an article that is on uh, June 6th on D-Day um, he had an election, an, an, an article titled "The Supreme Court May Hear the 800-Pound Gorilla of Election Law Cases," and in this article, he makes reference to this independent state legislature theory. He makes reference to the article that Vic and Akil have authored that will be published in the Supreme Court Review imminently and is available on SSRN now as well as. Uh, we will link to it as well, of course. Um, and the article closes, uh, interestingly, discussing whether or not the Supreme Court should take a case on this. Um, it's, it's interesting because in our last episode, Akil talked about how, with great alarm, how the Supreme Court almost took a case on, uh, on this leading up to the 2020 election. But now, uh, I think... We're talking about maybe taking a case to put this baby to rest, um, or this uh, gorilla. I guess it'd be a pretty big baby if it were an 800-pound gorilla. And it's quoted at the end of the article. Uh, the quote appears: "I think they should take it," Vikram Amar said of the North Carolina case. This thing is just brewing and bubbling. So, um, yes, it may be an 800-pound gorilla, but we've got. 400 pounds of law professor gorilla um, on our podcast today between Vic and Akil. So Vic, why don't we just start off by asking you, why do you think uh, they should take a case 
on the ISL theory. And, and maybe only 300 pounds because yeah, you have to slim down a bit. <laughs> I've, never, I've never been uh, 250 pounds. So, okay. I, I think we're, and we're, I've never well, been I'm quite 150. I'm giving myself credit for about 50 pounds. Okay, so. okay. Um, so, Andy, thanks again for having me. And to answer your question about why the court should take this issue, uh, the answer is because so many people are raising it and, and um, creating a question about something that really should not be open to question. And I, if the court is going to resolve this issue, and at some point it has to, um, it's best to do so in between election cycles. So if they grant review in this North Carolina case, and there are aspects of this North Carolina case that might make it somewhat imperfect, but if they go ahead and grant review, and I expect that they will, I won't be shocked if they don't, but I'd say there's more than a 50-50 chance that they will. And Vic, you're going to explain to us in more detail what this case is all about, of course. Yes, of course. Um, uh, then they'll decide the case in the uh, spring uh, early summer of 2023, which is about as far away from any federal election uh, that you can get. Now, this case involves invocation of the ISL, independent state legislature theory, in the context of congressional elections. The case is leading into the 2020 election in which ISL was invoked, and the court came uh, somewhat close to uh, accepting review to take up the issue. Those involve invocations of ISL in the presidential election context. Now, th- there, Akhil and I, in the article we wrote, explains why ISL is, is uh, unworkable in both Article One of the Constitution relating to congressional elections and Article Two relating to presidential elections. But there are also some interesting linguistic differences between Articles One and Two that make ISL even less plausibly textually speaking, for presidential elections um, under Article 2. So if I had my druthers, maybe I would prefer that the court take this up in the Article 2 context, because that's the weakest um, context for ISL proponents. But I think uh, uh, if they reject it in Article 1, as they should, then a fortiori, that is um, biological extension, uh, they have to reject it for Article 2. Now, here's a, what- a fortiori means even stronger, you know. In, in Latin. Um, here's here's the, what's at issue in the, in the, the North Carolina case. Um, the North Carolina legislature, which is one of those legislatures uh, that is um, perhaps redder than the rest of the state because of, of uh, gerrymandering in state legislative districts, passed congressional district uh, laws that favored the Republican Party, not surprisingly. And the North Carolina Supreme Court invoking the North Carolina Constitution, invalidated those excessively partisan congressional districts and instead um, uh, drafted its own congressional districts as a matter of state constitutional remedy. And Republicans have gone to the Supreme Court and they did so initially on an emergency application basis. And they said, Article one of the U.S. Constitution says that the times, place and manners for congressional elections shall be prescribed by the legislature of the state, not by the judiciary of the state, which is not the legislature. And therefore, the North Carolina Supreme Court's actions, even if undertaken to vindicate the North Carolina Constitution, usurp the power that Article one of the federal Constitution reserves for the elected state legislature and no one else. Now, the justices rejected uh, emergency relief in this case, but earlier this spring, four of the justices, 
in separate writings indicated they thought this issue was worthy of review, and they urged the, the Republicans to file a cert petition, which the Republicans did in short order, and it's that cert petition that's up uh, uh, for review in the Supreme Court right now. That's that's how ISL arises in the uh, in the congressional districting setting. Typically, when a state has been excessively partisan uh, on the part of its legislature in drawing congressional districts, and that's the issue that Adam Liptak. Um, who I think was one of Vic's law school classmates at Yale, if uh, memory serves, or at least yeah, overlapped with, with Vic. Um, that's the uh, case that Adam Liptak on June 6th uh, uh, describes in a very Im- long and important piece in the New York Times as the 800-pound gorilla um, issue. Now, uh, quoting Vic um, at, at, at some length, um, and, and I think mentioning me in passing, but, but, well, but links, Vic links, is the expert. It links to our article uh, very nicely. Um, so I'll just read Article 1, uh, Section 4, um, yeah. which says, the, time, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Congress may at any time by lawmaker alter such regulations, except as to the places of choosing senators. Right. And the North Carolina Republicans have argued that uh, because the judiciary is not the same thing as the legislature of the state, that it violated Article One of the federal constitution for the North Carolina Supreme Court to enforce the North Carolina Constitution um, against the legislature. So the, the, the big question is whether um, in Article 1 and also in Article 2 relating to presidential elections, when the U.S. Constitution uses the term legislature of the states, whether that means legislature of the states unconstrained by the state constitution and free from any uh, state uh, judicial enforcement of state constitutional norms. So the way this came up prior to 2020, uh, 2020 um, in the presidential setting, and first maybe let's read the text of Article 2, which is somewhat different than Article 1. It says, each state shall appoint in a manner that the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the number of House seats and U.S. Senate seats that that state has in Congress. So each state shall appoint in a manner the legislature thereof may direct this group of electors. And in Pennsylvania, in the run-up to the 2020 election, the Pennsylvania legislature had passed a statute that said for ballots to be valid and counted, they had to be received in the precinct by closing time of election day. But the Pennsylvania Supreme Court issued a ruling in the months leading into the November election saying the following. The Pennsylvania Constitution, which binds the Pennsylvania legislature, has a provision that people have a right to vote and have their votes counted uh, counted. And because of COVID and because of the unpredictability of the U.S. Postal Service, we, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, declare that the Pennsylvania Constitution requires votes be counted as long as they are postmarked by Election Day, even if they are received a few days later. And that's a requirement that comes from the Pennsylvania Constitution. And the Republicans in Pennsylvania went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And and, and this was way, way, way before Election Day that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said this. So so Vic is is describing something that we uh, went into some some detail about in our in our last episode. Um, as an example 
of a situation where the legislature, uh, the Republican legislature, was went to the Supreme Court to try to get them to say that the, that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, their state Supreme Court, had no business uh, doing what they were doing, enforcing the state constitution um, or reinterpreting the state, reinterpreting the statute that they had passed in light of the constant state constitution. Right. And maybe not even reinterpreting, just interpreting in the first instance mm-hmm. uh, in light of the state yes. constitution and enforcing that constitution. In yeah. October 2020, when the Republicans went to the U.S. Supreme Court in Pennsylvania, trying to get the U.S. Supreme Court justices to uh, undo what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had done, at that point, there was a flirtation by uh, three uh, or four of the justices, depending on how you count, in taking this issue. And there were references by some of the justices back to the Bush versus Gore concurrence that was authored by Chief Justice Rehnquist and joined by Justices Thomas and Scalia way back in 2000. So uh, that's why in the, in the run-up to the 2020 presidential election, there was cause for concern because a lot of us who thought that the Bush versus Gore opinion, all of it, um, the concurrence as well as the majority opinion were kind of a dead letter. We were startled by the fact that pe- uh, some justices were trying to resurrect at least the, the Article Two ISL concurrence. And we were also startled by the fact that the other justices on the court weren't putting this theory down as forcefully uh, and uh, specifically as they should. That's a, a good part of the impetus for um, uh, uh, me starting to write this article and then uh, pressing Akhil to join me so that we can make it as good as possible. Uh, and so that's that's the article that we've wrote and written that, that uh, Adam Liptak uh, uh, linked to that's that's forthcoming soon. Now this article, uh, so, of course, deals with the Bush versus Gore case, you know, pretty much in its entirety. And as we mentioned on our last podcast, there were uh, two arguments. You know, there was a there was a concurrence by three justices. So and then two justices had this other argument, which I think Akil, you said uh, Justice Souter. Um, bought into as well, although he didn't uh, concur in the judgment. Um, at any rate, there was an equal protection argument, which has been largely ridiculed, and and put and that one I think probably has been put to sleep. Um, and then there is this ISL argument, and in the in this article by the brothers Amar, which is titled "Eradicating Bush League Arguments: Root and Branch." the Article II independent state legislature notion and related rubbish. Um, that, that article addresses both the equal protection argument and the ISL argument. So, right. the, but, the related rubbish involved, among other things, the equal protection argument, the Supreme Court's decision to jump in in the case um, at, at all rather than let Congress um, uh, decide things on, in effect, uh, January 6th. So I don't think we, Andy, um, we're going to go into the equal protection argument in any great detail today, except I just want to remind our audience that in past episodes, like the discussion of of Dobbs, when we've talked about the importance of precedent um, and the limitations of uh, the weight of precedent, precedent carries more or less weight, in part uh, depending on the intrinsic persuasiveness of the precedent, and that in turn is influenced by um, in, in part, you know, who wrote it? Are the, um, who, who generated that precedent? Is that um, uh, author a particularly um, renowned constitutional interpretation or not? And, and various other factors with that. Was that author very close to the, 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 the founding moment? If, if the precedent 
um, issues from John Marshall or Joseph's story. It may carry more weight than if it issues from Joe Schmo of Kokomo. And it was important for me, at least, um, especially because I, I just haven't ever gotten over Bush versus Gore. But I think for Vic, too, for us to go back and set the record straight that Bush versus Gore was a pile of poo on everything, not just the ISL um, concurrence, but the equal protection argument, the remedy, their treatment of um, Florida's safe harbor provision, the very willingness of the court to to jump in when it really wasn't for the courts to decide, but rather for the Florida government, including the Florida courts and, and Congress, the, the very partisan lineup of Bush versus Gore, all of it was bad. And that's relevant if we see, as Vic has reported, elements in the world and even on the court to try to revive Bush versus Gore in any way, shape, or form. What Vic said startled him and me because we thought it had all been laid to rest. One final point, we've got new justices on the court over the last few years, and they include Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, and our our audience should know that the current court includes not just Clarence Thomas, who was there um, in Bush versus Gore as part of the original three, um, the concurrence, and not just Stephen Breyer, who was on the other side, but has not really said very much on this topic. But the court now includes Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. And back in 2000, they were young Republican lawyer operatives on the ground in Florida, helping George Bush win in the courts in the aftermath of that very close election. And John Roberts, John Roberts might also have been involved with the Bush team. I don't know. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if if uh, uh, four of the justices, including Clarence Thomas, have some history with Bush versus Gore in that sense. So we're going to go, go into the ISL argument now. But just one thing, though, Akil, I want you to clear up. Um, both you and Vic have said on this podcast so far that you thought that the arguments of Bush versus Gore were dead and buried. And now suddenly they've reared their ugly head again until you have to, you know, whack them all and get and get rid of them. But in our last podcast, you said, well, young conservative lawyers are being brought up, you know, if, as it were, by the Federalist Society to believe that ISL represents a principled uh, argument in Bush versus Gore. Right. You want to shoot that. So how is it that you're surprised that it's popping up, given that an entire generation or generations of lawyers are weaned on this, according to you? I only realized that after I saw it popping up, you know, and then I said, like, where is this coming from? So um, let's take Dobbs. I defended the leaked Dobbs draft. And, uh, and our audience knows that, and that's because I think Roe was a problem. I'm not unique in thinking Roe was a problem. And Vic, of course, clerk for Harry Blackman, who, who, who wrote Roe. Everyone in the Federalist Society is basically taught that Roe versus Wade is really problematic. So I knew that. And, and on Dobbs, I actually said, I agree with my friends in the Federalist Society. It really is a problem. And the Dobbs draft is like a classic Federalist Society originalism of a certain sort. And I uh, can accept that. I had thought that Bush versus Gore was dead and buried because no Supreme Court opinion had cited it favorably. 
There were reports that some of the justices actually in Bush versus Gore, who were among the five, actually now viewed the case with embarrassment. And I hadn't seen, yeah, there were some conservatives who in the moment defended Bush versus Gore, but then they had kind of gone silent. And so I just didn't realize that in subterranean ways, this had become a meme among young federalists. And when I saw this thing popping up, you know, Vic and I, then I started to pay a little bit more attention and realized that, yes, my conservative students, Federalist Society students, are, you know, have been told in, in recent years, this is all great stuff. Vic, you wanted to weigh in on that? Yeah, so, I mean, maybe we can get into uh, why we think ISL is so yes. uh, intellectually bankrupt. But before I do that, let me just build on on uh, uh, one thing Akhil mentioned and then uh, introduce yet another very topical um, uh, subject that relates to all this. First, um, Akhil adverted to the Dobbs draft that was leaked. And the Dobbs draft savages Roe versus Wade um, as being completely unsupported by the traditional pillars of constitutional uh, interpretation methodology, that is text of the Constitution, the words um, in historical context and by reference to historical practice uh, and the structure overall of the Constitution, and then uh, by reference to prior judicial rulings of the Supreme Court, judicial precedent. And as I think about ISL and the arguments that Akhil and I advanced against it, it's striking to me that ISL fails the uh, the um, the same criteria that the Dobbs court um, is holding Roe versus Wade to and, and criticizing Roe versus Wade on ISL fails precisely because it is contradicted by the text of the Constitution in its historical understandings. It's contradicted by the relevant historical practice by the institutional actors. It's contradicted by a century plus of unbroken and quite clear judicial precedent. So if Roe had nothing going for it, as Dobbs says it doesn't, and I'll bracket that for now, ISL has less or, or equally nothing going for it. And, and one reason why, by the way, um, these young lawyers on the conservative side who might have been told, hey, you know, the equal protection argument in Bush versus Gore may have been flawed, but there was this other argument that was more elegant and more sophisticated and more textually grounded, and here's what you should be talking about, and it's, it's the words of Article 2 themselves and the, leg- the use of the word legislature. One of the reasons that this has flown under the radar for 20 years is because Bush versus Gore was a shadow docket case. There was not full briefing. There was not meaningful argument. There was not scholarly input. There was not a time to reflect. There was just, we got to get this done. We got to save the country. Here's what we're going to say. And and so uh, in a way, Bush versus Gore, 20 years before we were talking about the shadow docket, really illustrates the perils of the shadow docket in a way that if the court grants in this uh, North Carolina case, Moore versus Harper, won't be subject to those same flaws, which is why I'm actually mildly optimistic that some, even some of the justices who might have seemed to embrace ISL in the past, whether it's Justice Thomas or Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Alito, when they see the arguments in full form and, and ask, how could we write an opinion that responds to these arguments, they're going to realize, hey, the right answer here is to stay out and let state courts um, interpret state law and enforce it, even in the context of Article One and Article Two. So that brings me to the three. And by state law, you mean state constitutions state constitution, as well as state, state statutes. The ultimate state law. So that, that brings me to the three big arguments that, that uh, got ISL. And Vic, just before you get, uh, say that, just the one 
final point, which builds on what you said, from a simple-minded point of view, if you actually don't understand all the history and background, you might think ISL theory is obviously sensible. It says legislature, okay? And that's not altogether different from a critique of Roe versus Wade. It doesn't say abortion, or it says due process rather than, you know, liberty uh, standalone. But even in Dobbs, we said, okay, it's due process, but there's privileges or immunities and unenumerated rights and women's equality, and it's a little bit more complicated. You know, even th- and that was what we talked about, that we had the Dobbs draft, but alternatives to the, the leaked Dobbs draft. And Vic is about to explain, yeah, it says legislature, but um, to quote from the Princess Bride, I do, we do not think that means what you Federalist Society youngins think it means. So let's start with the word legislature there, which is used in Articles 1 and Article 2. Legislature may mean an entity that can be distinct from the people, and certainly the ISL proponents argue that legislature is not the same thing as the populace. But legislature in 1787 was not simply some entity created to represent the people. It was an entity created and cabined by state constitutions. Legislatures are creatures of state constitutions. They don't exist except to the extent that state constitutions create them, empower them, and limit them. So you can't take the good without the bad. You can't say, well, legislature is this body that the the people have elected without also acknowledging that it's a body that the people have cabined, controlled, et cetera. And defined like, is it unicameral or bicameral? You know, how often is it selected? Um, By what apportionment criteria does it act um, by voice vote or by secret ballot? Does it pass laws with um, involving a separate governor who ordinarily isn't part of the legislature but is part of the veto process, or does it act without reference to gubernatorial input? Those are all things, part of what the legislature actually is in State X, defined by the Constitution, the state constitution of State X. And so... Um, and, and one, just one other example, and then Vic uh, will we'll jump back in. You know, um, is the legislature allowed, for example, under its state constitution to have religious tests or racial tests? We know that state legislatures in 1787 were understood to be entities limited by and subject to the limitations of state constitutions enforceable by state courts. We know this from a variety of different perspectives. As Akhil and Gordon Wood and other eminent historians of the time have argued, this was the ideology behind state constitutions that were enacted in the run-up to the federal constitution. State legislatures were um, uh, were uh, uh, philosophically supposed to be the alter uh, egos of the people, and they were cabined by the state constitutions uh, that created them. Um, state court judicial review that is invalidating state legislative enactments as violative of state constitutions, that predates even the U.S. Constitution and Marber versus Madison. Um, Andy, do you want to jump in there? Yeah, so, um, so what you're saying then is that state legislatures 
predated the U.S. Constitution, not only judicial review by state legislatures, but the, which you just said, but the legislatures themselves predated the U.S. Constitution, at least in some cases. So, so when the Constitution is referring to legislature, presumably it's referring to these entities that already existed at that and, point. And, and indeed, and, and indeed, ISL people take that as their starting point, that this is a reference to these entities that states had created that exist. But they, they, want, they don't want to take the, the entity um, with all its trappings. They want to take the entity in, in some platonic independent state without regard to the limits that it was hedged by. And, well, we, and, and just on, on, on just that specific point, Almost no state legislature in 1787 actually um, had to face a gubernatorial veto. Uh, Only Massachusetts um, and, in a more complicated way, New York, which had a council of revision, which the governor sat alongside um, others. So, But over the years, of course, the meaning and effect of state legislature um, has changed. Every state today has a legislature that has to submit its bills as a general proposition to the governor. So today, even you know, the ISL crowd admits, oh, well, a legislature, when it's passing laws, has to pass laws with its governor. Um, but that's because of subsequent state constitutional um, redefinitions, really, and modifications of what the legislatures in those states were in 1787. And to fast forward a little bit, when we turn to judicial precedent from uh, original understandings, in 1932 in Smiley v. Holm, the Supreme Court said that legislature for purposes of Article One in congressional districting can include the governor as Minnesota has involved the governor. And Akhil said ISL people seem to take that. I'm, I'm not sure they do. Pure ISL folks might argue that Smiley versus Holm was wrong too, but that would be an even a particularly extreme version of that ISL. That would be daft because, yeah, now how, the legislature is going to try to pass laws in the way that this legislature isn't allowed to pass laws in the state in any other way. So, yeah, is there position really? Minnesota didn't exist in 1787, but let's take a state that did exist. Let's take Virginia. You know, when the Constitution is adopted, the Virginia legislature doesn't submit its bills um, for approval or disapproval for, for veto or not to the Virginia governor. Now, of course they do. Is the ISL position actually, oh, the Virginia legislature today operates without reference to its governor because that's how it operated in 1787? That would be weird. Moreover, if we go back, as I said, to the founding and, and, and ask what a legislature was, um, we can see that it was not an independent free agent in all kinds of other ways. State legislatures were often subject to formal instruction by the voters. The voters could direct what the legislatures would do, and that would be legally binding. Um, the, the device of recall, where the voters uh, removed somebody from office, was completely consistent with the notion of a legislature, even though it's not consistent with the notion of a legislature that's independent of the popular formation. Um, so all of these things, uh, just as a matter of 1787 definitions, cut against the idea that a legislature is an independent rather than um, a, a, a confined entity. And Vic, why don't you tell them about even before 1787, the articles? Well, that's what I was going to say. So, so that now let's look at the, the uh, involvement of the legislature, per se, 
in selecting members to uh, to the federal uh, Congress. So prior to the Constitution, listeners know, I'm sure, that we, we had this thing called the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation was a, a, a league between the former colonies, um, and it didn't work out so well, which is why there was a convention to form the Constitution. But under the Articles of Confederation, each state was supposed to appoint representatives to the National Congress, to the National Legislature. And the Articles of Confederation in Article 5 use language that's very, very, very similar to Articles 1 and Articles 2 of the, of the subsequent U.S. Constitution. It says that the, the states shall appoint delegates to the National Congress um, in a manner that the legislature of the state shall prescribe. So very, very similar to, to the language you quoted from Article 1, Andy. In a manner the legislature shall prescribe. And yet, and yet, the only three states that adopted state constitutions after the Articles of Confederation were adopted. As adopted or amended. Or amended. Um, uh, uh, the only three states that adopted state constitutions at that time included in their state constitutions direct regulation of the way delegates to the National Congress were to be selected. In other words, those state constitutions did not leave it to the legislature. Those state constitutions directly confined the legislature by prescribing how the um, delegates to the uh, National Congress would be, uh, would be chosen. That, in turn, is consistent with the actions of the states in, in adopting new constitutions after 1787, when Articles 1 and Articles 2 use the word legislature. After 1787, four state constitutions were adopted, again, all of which directly regulate federal elections in ways that are inconsistent with this notion that the legislature has complete control over federal elections and, and they're, they're untethered to, uh, to uh, and unbound by anything that the state constitution or the state people might say. So you've got, you've got you know, three states before the constitution in the run-up right before 1787 in the Articles of Confederation. And everyone ratifying uh, or framing the constitution sort of knows that that's how the, uh, the, the earlier language of the confederation, is, Articles of Confederation, is being understood and cashed out. Right. That, the, the, the relevance of the Articles of Confederation, of course, is to the extent that it uses language very similar to Article One, and yet the state constitutions um, that were adopted seem to reject the notion of an ISL um, against that backdrop. That informs what we assume folks understood Articles One and Articles Two to mean when they referred to the state legislature, and that's only confirmed by the early actions of other states right after um, 1787. So if you look at the three states in the, 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 in the, in the Articles of Confederation period uh, that contradict ISL, and then the four states right after uh, 1787 that contradict ISL, you've got seven states that repudiate ISL, and there's no state that clearly embraces it. There are, to be sure, states that allow the state legislature to do whatever it wants with regard to congressional elections, but we've seen no historical evidence that those states felt that they had to do that. It may have just been that as a policy matter, they were going to leave that to the legislature, but there's, there's no suggestion in any of this founding history that people embraced ISL, and not even ISL proponents 
uh, adduce or advance any meaningful founding era history of which I am aware that that suggests that ISL uh, notions were embraced. And that would be pretty weird, wouldn't it? If if legislature in Articles 1 and Article 2 meant independent legislature and that were contradicted by the actions of seven states, wouldn't you think somebody would point out, hey, wait a minute, what's going on? Um, uh, uh, we, 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 we said that the, the, the legislature has complete uh, and, and, uh, primacy here, and yet no one was saying that. So it's really hard to argue that the understanding of the word legislature is, again, to quote Princess Bride, uh, what, they, what, they, what they say they think it is. Actually, Vic, I think your article with the Q mentions six states, not seven. But your big basic point remains, and indeed the six states you name in the article were an absolute majority of the 11 states that ratified the Constitution before Washington was sworn in as our first president. But in any event, you were saying that the original understanding of the term legislature was not what ISL proponents say it was. So maybe we should say then what we think it is. In other words, we've mostly said what it's not. Right. So what we think it is, is it is an acknowledgement by the Constitution that if a state wants to have its elected legislature through the legislative process lay out the rules for federal elections, that it is perfectly permitted to do so. Let's go back to the words of Article 2 and presidential election in particular. I think they illustrate this very nicely. Article 2 says each state shall appoint in a manner the legislature thereof may direct. Notice that the subject of that sentence is each state, not the state legislature. It's the state that's doing the appointing. It's the state that has the obligation to do the appointing. It just says the legislature may direct. It doesn't say the legislature must direct. It doesn't even say the legislature shall direct. It says the legislature may direct. That language makes perfect sense when we realize that states had on the books in 1787 different methods for appointment. Uh, in some states, maybe the legislatures did the appointments. In other states, maybe the governors or executive officials did appointments. Or in other states, maybe it was a combination thereof. So Article 2 makes clear that states are allowed to use their legislatures if they want to. But it nowhere suggests that the legislatures have to, excuse me, that the states have to use the legislatures in any particular way. That's graphically illustrated by the text of Article, Article 2. Article 1, the text is a little different, but we think it essentially means the same thing. Well, you made the, so looking at Article 1, you made the point that it doesn't say in Article 2 that they, they shall do it and that the state is the subject. But in Article 1, it says that, that the, you know, these things shall be prescribed. So it does say shall. It does, but again, who shall be, who shall? The legislature, and let's fall back on our big textual argument, legislature doesn't mean independent legislature right. in any of that. And, and, and going back, let's, let's make another point here. I killed it earlier, but it's, it's worth reiterating. We don't even know what legislature means. For example, what if a state said the following? We think there's too many laws enacted by our, our elected legislature, so we're going to engage in an experiment. We're going to dispense with an elected legislature for a five or 10 year period. We are going to make do all laws by direct democracy. We're going to have town hall meetings. Take us as a small state like Rhode Island. We're going to have town hall meetings to deliberate on all legislative proposals and adopt as, as statutes of our state only things that the people vote on. Okay. Now, there's no standing legislature. We've abolished it under the state constitution. Does that mean that that state can't participate in presidential elections during that period? 
And yet nobody, I think, argues that a state has to have an elected legislature, because if they do, then we have to ask, well, what does it have to include? I've already pointed out, you know, Nebraska has a unicameral legislature. Other states have bicameral legislatures. We call them both. What if a state has legislatures for certain kinds of laws and other legislatures for other kinds of laws? We have legislature A that makes laws relating to crimes and legislature B that makes laws relating to, to civil regulation. What is a legislature? The only answer to that is we have initiatives and referenda, a direct lawmaking today in a lot of states, especially Western states. And by the way, um, Texas, for example, has two Supreme Courts, one for criminal matters and, and one for civil matters. And and so um, what Vic is giving you examples of, which, again, if, if you know Five minutes worth. If you're a, a, a third-year law student in the Fed sock or something like that, you say, "Which well, says legislature?" But you know, or if you're deciding things on the shadow docket. But the more you get into it, the more history you understand of the founding period and of subsequent periods. The more you understand, Andy, that the answer to your question, "Well, what is a legislature?" is an entity defined um, for certain for for certain purposes by the state. A constitution, and over the course of time, a state constitution actually might redefine the legislature in various ways. For example, by adding initiative and referendum, or a commission, a special commission, you can call it a special legislature if you like. And Vic is going to come back to this um, that will dis- that will decide, for example, districting, because we don't trust the ordinary legislature to do that because they may have a conflict of interest because they're composed of incumbents. So, in effect, we have legislature A that passes most of the laws, um, and Legislature B, we call it a commission, that um, uh, passes the laws for how Legislature A is to be apportioned, you know, because Legislature A would have a conflict of interest when it comes to gerrymandering or incumbent self-protection. And so we have two legislatures, Legislature A for most things, and Legislature B, and Arizona, you see, has a version of this um, that the United States Supreme Court has actually endorsed. Vic will tell you about that. Legislature B for the purpose of state legislative uh, districting and or congressional districting, for example. So the answer to your question, um, Andy, is that over time, state constitutions have actually profoundly modified even what the word legislature for U.S. constitutional purposes actually means. And again, the easiest example of that is just the reminder that in 1787, only one state legislature passed laws by presenting them to a governor who had in his own hand a veto pen. Only one, Massachusetts. Today, every state does that. And by the way, if, and we'll, uh, I right, we'll get to this Arizona case a little later, if a state can designate an independent commission as a legislature for purposes of Article One and congressional districting, there's And no the reason. Supreme Court has said it can. The modern Supreme Court, per John Roberts. And then there's or, or actually, per, 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 well, actually, per John Roberts and Ruth Bader Ginsburg in complicated yeah. ways. It can also, a state can also say, for purposes of congressional districting, we're going to involve the judiciary um, in a quasi-legislative role. So state court judges are elected in many states. Supreme Court justices are elected statewide the way governors and U.S. senators are in many states. So these are all just definitions. The ultimate backdrop and backstop to what a state can do in creating legislatures Um, is the Republican Guarantee Clause, that a state has to be consistent with majoritarian democracy 
democratic little d principles. Uh, But as Alexander Hamilton said in the Federalist Papers, as long as what a state is doing is democratic little d, then it can experiment in all kinds of different forms of state government. That's what the 10th Amendment and the Republican Guarantee Clause uh, in conjunction really mean. That's the true meaning of federalism, not trying to overread what the word legislature means in any particular setting. And so Vic and I are the true state's rights folks because we actually are championing the right of actually the peoples of the different states to actually experiment in in, in various ways subject to um, the safety net of Republican government, whereas the ISL folks are actually trying to impose all sorts of limits on how states can operate um, without, frankly, the kind of historical or uh, textual support you would expect to see if the U.S. Constitution is imposing all sorts of straitjackets on how states have to structure their entities. So is it reasonable to think of the legislature as uh, as not really just the bicameral body or whatever the body might be that where people actually sit and vote on the laws but also to include the governor you know to include the judiciary to the degree that it that it uh to the extent that it conducts judicial review to make sure that the legislature's uh actions are consistent with the state constitution are they part of the legislature in that sense because for these purposes For these purposes, yes. And that's what the Supreme Court, per Ruth Bader Ginsburg, said in 2015 for a majority of the court, that for these purposes, legislature means legislative process. That means direct democracy in those states that authorize it. It means involvement of governors in those states that make use of governors. It means involvement of the judiciary in those states that involve the judiciary in making sure that the other actors comply with the basic rules of the game in that state. So it's all about the process. Uh, As long as what um, uh, is being done is consistent with legislative process as laid out in the state constitution, that is sufficient to comply with Article 1 and, by extension, Article 2. So all of that that we just talked about, Andy, that's all part of the first argument that we make against ISL. You might call all of that an originalist argument. What does the word legislature mean? What what did people think it meant at the time? What were the actions of state constitutions under the Articles of Confederation and shortly after 1787? Um, uh, Another another aspect of, of textualism here that's important is the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution. The supremacy clause lists various kinds of laws in a descending order of supremacy. And it's important that the supremacy clause places state constitutions above state legislative enactments. It reinforces the idea that state legislative enactments are subservient to state constitutions. Um, uh, That's consistent with all the theory that we just described. But there are other you get there by a lot of different routes. Andy, let's just since you like our audience to hear the specific words of the Constitution, here's the supremacy clause. And I'll just interpolate some numbers so that people hear the ranking of laws under the Article 6 Supremacy Clause. So, one, this Constitution, and two, the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and three, all treaties made, which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges of every state shall be bound thereby anything in the four constitution or five 
laws of any state, to the contrary, notwithstanding. So like five different kinds of laws mentioned, as Vic said, textually in descending order of legal authority. The U.S. Constitution, U.S. statutes passed by Congress, U.S. Constitution comes from the people. So it's number one. Statutes come from only representatives of the people. Um, it's Congress, it's number two. Then treaties, the House of Representatives isn't involved, so they're, they're less than statutes. Then, but all of those are of the, the United States as a whole. Then state constitutions, which come more authentically from state peoples, and then state statutes. So five different kinds of law in descending order of authority, in descending order basically of democratic strength and, and, and pedigree. U.S. Constitution, U.S. statutes, U.S. treaties, state constitutions, and then and only then ordinary state law, laws. Yeah, when you know you explained this to me, and uh, when you were writing the article, and my reaction was so: if state constitutions are uh, you know above state laws, which I think most of us believe that they they are, um, then if somehow the, these enactments by the the legislative body were uh, immune from judicial review or immune from review by the state Supreme Court, the, the, who's the judge of the state constitution. Well, you know, Article 1, Section 4 also talks about Congress's rights to pass certain laws regarding elections. By that same principle, those enactments would be immune from review by the Supreme Court, which I think the Supreme Court would be very reluctant to say is the case. Exactly. The very clauses that Vic has cited earlier suggest, let's say, take Article 1. It says, well, time, place, and manner of congressional elections in the first instance can be made by state legislatures, and then, but Congress can also weigh in. Well, when Congress weighs in, it's governed by the U.S. Constitution as construed by the U.S. Supreme Court. So why would we think that um, that very same provision of Article One, somehow when it talks about state legislatures, which are the state counterpart of Congress, they somehow you know, are independent of their state constitutions as construed by their state Supreme Courts. It would be very weird. Oh, Congress is limited. But yeah, then you, and, and the, you intuited this. You, you said this. If Congress is limited by the U.S. Constitution as construed by the U.S. Supreme Court, why aren't state legislatures in that very same sentence limited by state constitutions as construed by state Supreme Courts. As in, and as Vic reminded us, state judicial review of state statutes under state constitutions predated the Philadelphia Constitution, the Philadelphia Convention, the U.S. Constitution, and Marbury versus Madison. So I, I agree with all of that, of course, but to be fair to ISL proponents, Andy, let me mention what their rejoinder is to that, since we want to be very balanced. They would say that the very same federal constitution that creates and empowers Congress limits Congress so that when Congress is empowered in Article I, Section 4 to regulate congressional elections, um, it, 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 there are other provisions of the original Constitution that also limit Congress, like the prohibition on religious oaths, so that Congress obviously is bound by those limitations when it exercises the powers that it's given under Article One. But I think two compelling responses to that, um, uh, or three compelling responses to that, is one, well, what's good for the federal Constitution is also good for state constitutions, and two, that is textually 
embodied in the supremacy clause that Uckshell just read. So the federal constitution itself recognizes the supremacy of state constitutions over state statutes. It's just not, it's not just a background principle. It's a background principle that's incorporated in the federal constitution. Moreover, if this idea that, well, when Congress was empowered in article one, section four, it was also limited by other parts of the original constitution. That doesn't quite explain why Congress would be bound by subsequent amendments to the U S constitution that don't necessarily apply to, to Article One because they were adopted at a different period in time. Um, there would be complicated questions there about the amendments to the U.S. Constitution. So all of these are, are reasons why um, I think uh, uh, it's clear that state statutes are subservient to the state constitutions. Now, there is this separate element of ISL that we'll get into, um, namely, okay, even if we concede that state constitutions limit the state statute, the state legislatures, are state courts the right entities to be enforcing that? Do, do we instead somehow trust federal courts more to interpret state constitutions? We'll come to that a little bit later. But I want to turn, if I could, from the first big argument over the meaning of the word legislature and uh, what, it, what it means for each state to appoint electors uh, and, and uh, what it means for legislatures to direct them or, or prescribe the manner of appointment. Under even the broadest vision of ISL, State legislatures, if they wanted to, could certainly enlist state executive branch officials and, in particular, state courts to administer federal elections, right? Under the broadest reading of ISL, the the idea is not that state legislatures have to be the only entity that counts. It's uh, The broadest reading of ISL is just that the state legislature is the one that gets to call the shots, But getting to call the shots could mean delegating power to um, state courts to help administer the election, which leads us to the second big argument against ISL. And this is an argument that Upkill advanced in 2010 or so in the Florida Law Review, somewhere around there, 2009, 2010, 2011. And um, the point he made is a a very powerful one, and we build on it here. Um, and, and others have been making similar points uh, in, the, in, the, in the period between 2000 and 2010, but Akhil really elaborated it. Remember, of course, that federal elections are also almost always state elections. The same day that we elect congresspersons and presidents, we also elect state representatives and governors and local officials. And we often do so using an integrated ballot. Most states find it efficient to have a single ballot that lists state and federal offices alongside it. So if we look at what most state legislatures have done over the past century plus, they have chosen to use a unified, uniform ballot for state and federal offices. And there's no doubt that the state courts can enforce the state constitutions against the state legislature with regard to the state offices on these ballots, right? So if there's a question about whether someone's vote counts for governor and the the state Supreme Court says, well, that vote has to count for governor because the state's constitution says so, no one disputes that the state Supreme Court has the power to uh, require that that vote be counted, even if the legislature wrote a law that suggested that that vote shouldn't be counted because the state constitution overrides the legislature in state constitutions and state Supreme Courts are the masters of interpretation with regard to state elections. No one denies that. How weird would it be if 
if the legislature passed a, a law that said to have your ballot counted, the ink has to be black, not dark blue. And the state Supreme Court said, because of the state constitutional right to have your vote counted, your vote for governor, if cast in dark blue, so long as it clearly reflected your intent, must be counted for governor. But now it can't be counted for Congress or it can't be counted for the president. Or if you think there's a difference between Articles 2 and Articles 1, it can be counted for the president, but not for Congress, because Article 2 says each state and Congress says, uh, and Article 1 says the legislature reached it. How weird would it be to have this incredible, chaotic disuniformity in the administration of uh, unified federal and state elections? So at a minimum, before we even take up this big $64,000 question of what powers the state legislature has to, to defy the state constitution in federal elections, shouldn't we at least be confident that the state legislature wants to act independently of the state constitution? And isn't the fact that the state legislatures have provided for jurisdiction for state courts to resolve election disputes, isn't that strong evidence that the state legislatures themselves have chosen to involve state courts in enforcing state constitutional norms in all elections, state and federal? And, and, and so, so even if we take ISL um, uh, uh, on its face value, um, uh, the current practice in places like North Carolina and elsewhere completely comply with ISL because um, until and unless state legislatures make it clear that they want to be immune from state constitutional um, uh, constraints as regards federal elections, and they catch a lot of political heat for doing that, until and unless they do that, and until and unless state courts tell us that that's what the state legislature is trying to do, then, um, then obviously state courts um, uh, can, can adjudicate both state and federal elections. If a state legislature explicitly said, we want the state constitution to apply to presidential and congressional elections, and we want actually the state constitution as construed by the state Supreme Court to, to apply, whether or not it applies of its own force, whether or not we're bound, even if we're totally untethered, we, we want um, the state constitution to apply um, uh, because it applies of its own force to all the other parts of the election. If a state legislature could say that explicitly, and of course it could, and ISL people cannot deny that it could do that because then they'd be denying the authority of the very legislature they're trying to champion. The simple point is that's what state legislatures have done. Even if they haven't said so in so many words, it's the obvious better understanding of what the state legislatures have done. And then you say, well, who are you to say what's the better understanding? And I say right back at you, who are you, United States Supreme Court, to say that? That is ultimately a question of state law, damn it, and it is constitutional law 101, federal courts law 101, that state courts ultimately um, determine that. And state courts in places like Florida in 2000, in effect, were saying, but the U.S. Supreme Court and its shadow docket just wasn't paying close attention, um, that we believe that the Florida legislature actually has wanted the Florida Constitution as a whole to apply to the whole electoral system and has wanted us to be involved in monitoring the whole electoral system to make the state legislative scheme make sense and, and work as a whole. Now, can I just ask you a question about what you, what you were saying, Vic? Um, sure. So would it be okay for the state legislature to pass a law, an elect, you know, to pass an election law and in it to say, 
for the purposes of this law, we are immune from review from the state, uh, uh, that the state Supreme Court cannot review this law regarding its constitutionality? I don't think that would be okay. Akhil doesn't think that would be okay because um, because ISL theory is wrong and let the legislature in Articles 1 and 2 um, is, is means legislature um, abound by state constitution. We have to take the legislature as we find it. That is a creature of uh, and a creature limited by the state constitution. But what I'm saying is until and unless they say that, there's an even easier basis for repudiating the ISL theory, namely the state legislatures have, have acquiesced in this. They, they've affirmatively enlisted the state legis- uh, judiciary, and actually this is at issue in the North Carolina case. So one of the arguments that our good friend Neil Katyal, and I know you've had him on in the past, one of the arguments he's made in, in uh, arguing to the court why they should not grant review in this case is because he thinks it doesn't squarely present the ISL question in as much as there are provisions in North Carolina statutes passed by the legislature that seem to, on their face, enlist the North Carolina judiciary in uh, adjudicating all elections, including federal elections, not just state elections. So Neil reads these state statutes the way Akhil reads state election law generally, namely as enlisting the role of, of state uh, the state courts. Now, of course, the ISL proponents challenge that reading of these state statutes. And, and ultimately, uh, this is going to be a question for the North Carolina courts. Here's an interesting factoid for you, for, for you listeners. Every state in the country other than North Carolina has a mechanism by which federal appellate courts, that is U.S. Courts of Appeals and the U.S. Supreme Court, when confronted with a question of state law as to which the state Supreme Court should be the final word, has a mechanism whereby the federal appellate court can certify that question of state law to the state Supreme Court and get an answer on it. So the U.S. Supreme Court could, in this North Carolina case, uh, um, except for the fact that North Carolina is the one state that does not have a certification procedure, they could ask the North Carolina Supreme Court, by the way, has the North Carolina legislature affirmatively enlisted you, the North Carolina judiciary, in enforcing the state constitution in 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 federal elections as well as state elections? But, but one complexity of this case is North Carolina lacks such a certification mechanism. Uh, there's no lot of uh, proposals for them to have one, uh, and maybe this experience this year will, will cause them to change that. But this is a second independent basis for repudiating ISL as it is currently being argued, namely, even if the state legislatures had complete autonomy here, which they don't. Akhil and I disagree with that because of the first and third arguments we make, the originalist argument and the argument from judicial precedent. But even if you were to embrace that, um, all of the laws on the books, all of the cases by state Supreme Courts that come up these days, whether from Pennsylvania or North Carolina, would be fully okay because they reflect uh, an affirmative uh, enlistment of, of, uh, by the state legislature in, in affirmative involvement uh, in administering federal elections. Now, just... Uh you know, in terms of when you're talking about they're enlisting the, the courts in adjudicating the elections, so that's not the same thing as, as enlisting them in, in the constitutionality of what they're doing. It's, it's no, like I setting think it them is. up like, well, isn't it also like giving them, you know, the ability to say, uh, you know, this guy had more votes, you know, or something like that? So, so, so it, it's, it's not limited right. to enlisting them to enforce the Constitution, but it includes enforcement of the Constitution as what they are being enlisted to do. Right, but I was saying that when you say adjudicate, um, it, 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 it can mean more than just the constitutionality of it. 
To sure. be sure, adjudication involves all could, – it could be a statutory interpretation question that doesn't implicate the state constitution. It could be a question of whether the statute violates the state constitution. It could be a question of whether the statute needs to be um, uh, read in one way so as to avoid a conflict with the state constitution. It could be determinations of fact, um, even when the underlying law in question is not really in dispute – all of those are subsumed within the enlistment of the judiciary to implement federal as well as state elections. And it's not just the judiciary. It might be the state secretary of state who's also involved, right. who ISL purists would also deny um, uh, should be involved because the secretary of state is not the legislature. Um, uh, and uh, and so involving secretary of state, they say, would, would violate the ISL, except to the extent that the legislature has chosen to do so. You know, a, a few moments ago, I mentioned this possibility of certification to state courts when the federal court is unsure as to the meaning of state law that could be dispositive in the federal uh, litigation. Uh, because the North Carolina case that is pending in front of the Supreme Court is on certiorari from the North Carolina Supreme Court itself, the U.S. Supreme Court, if it's interested in this second big argument, namely that even if um, the state constitution doesn't apply of its own terms, and we think it does, it implies because the state legislature has affirmatively incorporated it by uh, by involving the state judiciary. If the U.S. Supreme Court is interested in this argument uh, after it takes review, it could remand to the North Carolina Supreme Court to get an answer on this question, just as it remanded to the Florida court in, Florida, in Bush versus Gore to get a clear read on what the Florida Supreme Court thought Florida law provided for. So here the remand would say the following. It may be relevant to us whether the, the North Carolina legislature has empowered you to adjudicate federal elections, how do you read the uh, state uh, jurisdictional statutes as regards federal elections? Do you, re do you read that as an affirmative authorization by the legislature to involve you in those elections? And, of course, the reason that the court might do something like that is that the state courts are better judges of state law than the Supreme Court is, because it doesn't know the state law of 50 states. That's what I referred to earlier as Constitutional Law 101, Federal Jurisdiction Law 101. Right. Which, which ISL people seem to have a problem with, because for reasons that aren't entirely clear, they think that the U.S. Supreme Court is to be more trusted than state courts are um, to fairly interpret state law. Which is really weird. See, the state, we, Vic and I are the state rights people. Another way of saying it is that this is eerie. 101. Erie is a case that everyone in a real law school, that is, <laughs> with the possible exception of Yale Law School, um, my law school, everyone in a real law school learns a case called Erie versus Tompkins in his or her first year. It was, at a certain point, um, um, the most cited case in um, a landmark case book called Hart and Wexler. Um, so it's, it's a hugely important case. That can be understood in different ways, but it basically the, 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 the gist of it for pur current purposes is federal courts are really the best interpreters and the last word on the meaning of federal law, but state courts are really the best interpreters and last word on the meaning of state law. And the world is complicated because in any given factual situation, there are state law issues sometimes and federal law issues, and they interact, and they are, they're connected in various ways. So in, in the real world, you've got state and federal law involved in any given transaction, but federal courts are the definitive interpreters of federal law, 
and state courts are the definitive interpreters of state law. That's, so me, that's eerie. Let me build on that. In, in our article, Akhil uh, and I point out that Erie, which comes from the 1930s, is really not the first case standing for this principle. The, the principle actually goes back way earlier and is part of the original uh, founding. Uh, but if you... Uh, and, and Vic, just on that, yes. Erie is from a very well-respected jurist, uh, Louis Brandeis, whose law clerk, among other, one of whose leading law clerks was Henry Friendly, one of whose leading law clerks was John Roberts. So John Roberts pays attention to Louis Brandeis. We've talked about that before. Um, but the principle that Erie articulates goes all the way back to John Marshall a hundred years earlier, a case called Green versus Niels Lessee. And so, uh, and John Roberts thinks a lot about John Marshall as well as Louis Brandeis. And this is connected to what I said before, that the weight of a given precedent in part depends on its persuasiveness, which is influenced in part by how distinguished or not the, the author of the, the present is more generally. We give more weight to a Henry Friendly opinion than to an opinion from Judge um, Joe Schmo. And we give more weight in general to Louis Brandeis. He's generally reckoned a pretty uh, significant justice or to uh, Chief Justice John Marshall. So Vic is reminding our audience, a couple of things. On originalist grounds, oh, it's not just the 1930s case, it's actually back to the founding era, John Marshall, and from a kind of persuasive authority perspective, it's again, it's not just Louis Brandeis, it's John freaking Marshall. So, um, Akhil adverted to kind of, you know, interpretation of precedent. I know that precedent is the third big argument against ISL that we're going to get to at some point. But let me just make one other. I want to disentangle these two parts uh, of the ISL theory that I've mentioned before, but I want to kind of uh, remind uh, folks can be distinct. One is the question whether state legislatures are bound by state constitutions. If you agree with me and Akhil, that state legislatures are creatures of and bound by state constitutions. And then this, this, the only question is, well, who should we trust to safeguard state constitutional values? It's hard for me to understand why we would trust the state legislature over the state judiciary or why we would trust the federal judiciary over the state judiciary when it comes to protecting the values of the state constitution. So if we all agree that the state constitution should, should govern, then the question is, okay, who's the best actor to make sure that it is, it is respected? We certainly can't leave it to the legislature to police, it, police itself. And as between the state Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court, ISL proponents offer no reason why federal courts should be preferred to state courts, just as they offer no reason why state legislatures should be preferred to state courts in terms uh, when it comes to protecting state constitutional values. It is possible that not one of the justices, it's at least theoretically possible, has ever even set foot in Florida. And yet they're, you know, um, <laughs> claiming to know the Florida Constitution better than the, the, the Florida Supreme Court, may have never set foot even in the state 
of North Carolina. And it's probably not true, but it's, it's theoretically possible. So why would the people of North Carolina in their state constitution, you know, really in effect have, have designated the United States Supreme Court to vindicate their vision rather than justices from North Carolina who are part of the government of North Carolina accountable in all sorts of ways to North Carolinians? And in that regard, let me point out one thing. In many, perhaps most states, state Supreme Court justices are electorally accountable in a way that's even more meaningful than the way individual legislators are accountable. Because uh, putting Illinois aside, Illinois is kind of unusual. In most states where state Supreme Court justices either are elected or have to stand for a retention election, those elections are done on a statewide basis. The way governor's elections and U.S. senators' elections are done, they are immune from the partisan gerrymandering that characterizes and describes the, uh, uh, the, what, what state legislatures look like today. Okay, so we've covered two out of the three big pillars here in the, that are holding up this temple of ISL destruction. Um, and uh, I think that the last one, the precedential pillar. Um, judicial precedent. Judicial precedent. Judicial precedent will uh, await our next episode uh, when we'll go over a whole bunch of fascinating cases, um, including Smiley versus Home that was mentioned uh, and Arizona was mentioned, and there are others as well. So there's a lot of uh, very important cases that we'll cover. So you'll learn more law on our next podcast. So thank you so much to uh, Vic Amar. Um, it was great to see you, Vic, or hear you. Thank you. Same here. And uh, Akil, thanks again. And we'll be back with you next week. Great. Great.